Welcome to Reading the Room, a literary podcast featuring author interviews and discussions with bookish content creators. I'm your host, Jalen, also known as The Bar in the Bookcase on YouTube. Today, Mona Awad returns to the podcast for a special part two of a Reading the Room Halloween special. Last year, Mona joined me right around the time of Halloween to talk about the paperback release of All's Well, and this time she's here to talk about her brand new novel, Rouge. From the critically acclaimed author of Bunny, Rouge is a horror-tinged gothic fairy tale about a lonely dress shop clerk whose mother's unexpected death sends her down a treacherous path in pursuit of youth and beauty. Can she escape her mother's fate and find connection that is more than skin deep? For as long as she can remember, Belle has been insidiously obsessed with her skin and skincare videos. When her estranged mother, Noelle, mysteriously dies, Belle finds herself back in Southern California, dealing with her mother's considerable debts and grappling with lingering questions about her death. The stakes escalate when a strange woman in red appears at the funeral offering a tantalizing clue about her mother's demise, followed by a cryptic video about a transformative spa experience. With the help of a pair of red shoes, Belle is lured into the barbed embrace of the lavish culty spa to which her mother was devoted. There, Belle discovers a frightening secret behind her and her mother's obsession with the mirror, and the great shimmering depths and demons that lurk on the other side of the glass. Rouge holds up a warped mirror to our relationship with mortality, our collective fixation with surfaces, and the wondrous, deep longing that might lie beneath. And last time Mona was on the podcast, after we finished recording, we had a really fun discussion about drag. And since this book involves beauty and outward appearances, I figured it was a great way to dabble back in drag and make it a fun, horror, Halloween-themed episode overall. If you enjoyed this episode or enjoy reading The Room generally, a great way of supporting the podcast is leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts, or sharing the podcast on socials or with friends and family is another great way of supporting the pod as well. Now, without further ado, let's get into the discussion with Mona Awad, and happy Halloween. Mona, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh my gosh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You are basically, so last year for Halloween, you were my guest and you're back for Halloween again. So this is a Halloween centric episode. We are here to talk in particular about Rouge, which I feel like is the perfect Halloween title. Um, and I have so many questions for you about this book as I I love you in your work and it feels like at once in conversation with your past work, but it is a kind of a bit of a departure, I would say, exploring new territory. But I figured I would start here by asking you about kind of how I consider your writing and kind of what frameworks you're drawing from. So I feel like your books, they often tie a particular social critique with something fantastical or horrific often. Um, and I'm wondering for you, so with Bunny, we have this exploration of like loneliness and creativity with MFA programs. And all as well, we have chronic pain and theater. Here we have beauty and grief with a vampiric cult. So for you, which side do you start with? Do you start with like a social critique and then you tie it to the fantastical or do you have the fantastical come first? Like, what does that look like for you? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I feel like if I'm being honest, it, it often doesn't come from a place of critique initially. It comes from like my own genuine vulnerability to the thing that I'm exploring um, and fascination um with the thing um so you know um when it when it was uh when it was beauty when it was when i was looking at beauty it's really started with my own obsession with um with youtube skincare videos which i started watching in 2019 and could not stop watching and i was so drawn in by so many aspects of it like by the voices and and um just by the narratives and the and the product review and the language and there was just so much about it that I found so fascinating. I was buying all of these products. I was suddenly like wanting to get facials and stuff. It's all very new for me. Um, and you know, a a part of my brain, I guess the novelist part of my brain, just sort of lit up and thought, 
there's something else going on here. You know, you're obsessed and obsession is so fascinating to me because logic can't save you from it. Awareness of obsession doesn't save you from obsession. Um, and obviously you're in the grip of something that's, that's powerful. Um, and so it, it came from a place of like enchantment and fascination and obsession that then allowed me to go in and, and yeah, and then just kind of interrogate some of the things that I thought were more sinister about it. Early on in the book, I felt, I don't know, I, I felt seen and also called out a little bit because there's this um, exploration of like, of necks being very vulnerable um, and like yeah. what that means. And so a trend like on my YouTube channel, since I started it back in like 2020, is every single time I record, my neck gets flush red. And even when I feel in control yeah. or if I feel like calm, I like have this subconscious nerve that just comes out in my neck yeah. and I can't help it and I hate it. Um, but I just kind of accepted it and embraced it. So I don't like, how do you think about vulnerability in this book and like landing on something so particular as like next, like where did that come for you um, and like researching this? Yeah, it's so funny that you talk about flushing there because I flush too, like, and, it's, and I can't help it. And it doesn't, sometimes I don't even feel nervous. It's just some kind of physiological thing that happens and you can't control it. But, but then suddenly people are able to read you, like maybe even misconstrue like your, what's going on inside of you because something is being revealed in spite of yourself. So yeah, flushing is such a weird such a weird thing, especially when you're, you know, when you're, when you're public facing, um, it's very vulnerable. Um, and yeah, the neck, how the book starts is with, she is, I mean, it's not funny, but it is. Cause that's always the way I guess it is in my work, but, but she is, she is at her mother's funeral and, um, presumably definitely grieving, but instead of being a part of the, you know, of the socializing and, 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 and being with the other mourners, she's in the bathroom alone watching this YouTube video about necks. Cause she's obsessed. My main character like myself um, is obsessed with uh, these YouTube skincare videos. And she's watching this one about how to take care of your own neck. And the part of the reason why I started with that one is because I find those neck videos hilarious. First of all, I just think they're funny. Um, I, I think it's hilarious that even though the neck is totally part of the face, it has been isolated and commodified and a bunch of products are available exclusively for the skin of the neck. Um, and it, I guess it is different skin. So there's, there's maybe some legitimacy to it, but I do also find it very funny. I can't help it. And, uh, and I think it's also a signal to the reader that she may be in trouble. Like even the title of the video, how to save your own neck um, is a bit of a warning that yeah, she may be lost in this beauty thing, but it, it might be dangerous for her. And, uh, and yeah, the, the title and the neck um, might be just a little bit of a warning to the reader and to her. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I mean, tying to the neck is a very particular, you know, subgenre in horror, it's just like vampire stories. I love them. Um, and right. this one, I don't want to spoil too much of what happens at the end, but I will say, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler. It is a bit of a vampire uh, tale. Oh, yeah. um, it's also a ghost story. There's a lot of different mm -hmm. things going on. But um, in terms of, I want to start with like, the prologue of this book, because it's, it's so captivating and it, it feels so kind of classic in the sense of how we're introduced to the, the mother figure and also the, the mirror and all these things. Um, did you first draft the prologue and then the rest of the book or did it come later for you? Yeah, this this book had a really interesting like kind of creative um, genesis because it, it actually started with this short story that I wrote for the New York Times um, about um, 
getting this facial that um, makes the character forget everything. Um, and so it's first, it's first like, um, you know, iteration was, was this short story. Um, but the next thing that I wrote, I knew it was going to be a novel. I actually knew even back then when I was writing the short story that I was writing a scene that would be in this larger novel. Um, and I didn't yet know what that would look like. I just knew that I wanted to write a horror novel about beauty and about grief. Um, because I think, you know, ultimately the story is about so much more than beauty, just like any story about beauty is about so much more than beauty. Um, and, uh, and I started with the prologue after that, that was the next thing that I wrote and, uh, and didn't write the, the, the body of the book until, until after I wrote that prologue, the prologue was so important because it really, it's, it's basically a memory from, from childhood about how this girl is experiencing fairy tales, her mother and the mirror, um, all of which figure largely in the, in the story. And it's really elemental and, um, and a little frightening. Um, but it, it, it allowed me to set the tone, I think. So I'm really, really glad that it was the first thing that kind of came out um, because I kind of knew, even before I knew where the story was gonna lead me, I kind of already knew that it was gonna be about dread and enchantment and and our fraught relationships with our reflections, yeah. I was watching some interviews of yours and I know it was drafted in five weeks, is that correct? Yeah. Um, how did that feel? I mean, was that similar or different from your previous works? Like, did it feel like a quick like dash to finish it or was it, kind of an exciting thing to put a limit on yourself because I find like myself I if I put myself on deadline I work better <laughs> or more efficiently because you have to get it done but I'm wondering how that works for you as a writer yeah I mean it's it's often how I how I've worked since bunny really when I was working on bunny I was a grad student and um my friend and I put together a writing contract where we were both going to finish our novels over the course of the summer and we had to check in with each other every day to make sure that we hit our daily word counts, hour long counts. And um, and that's how I finished the first draft of Bunny over the course of the summer. I mean, I had to revise it and I had to work with it for a long time to get it to a place where I could send it out. But but it did, that first first draft was written in three months or so. And, and I think I've just done it by necessity, but I've also realized that concentrating it like that in terms of time can be so useful because it really forces you to stay in the story and move forward. I'm, I'm not a writer who um, revises as I go. I like to kind of move forward and catch the voice and catch the momentum of it and try to get as far as I can with it while it's alive to me in that like first um, in that first version. So that, yeah, when I, when I look back on it, I've got the whole thing rather than I worked, you know, for months and months and months on, on half of it. And then I take a break and I have to step away for work. And then I come back and it's, it's not the same energy when you come back and you have to finish something. I, I find it far more useful to finish a first draft in one go. And because I'm a teacher and I, you know, I teach during, during the fall and winter, uh, semester, my my breaks and my summers become those generative periods and so with rouge yeah i wrote it during the five week winter break um we had a five week winter break instead of a, our typical like three and a half because of the pandemic and so i was i was actually able to finish a draft of rouge because it's it's a longer book for me um but i was working like i was writing you know two to three thousand words a day so 
it was a lot, but it was so fun. It was really fun. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's one thing that really shows in this book too. It seems like you have, you're you having a ton of fun making this, even though it's a very dark book and it's, it has a lot of heavy themes, but you have this sort of levity with all the things going on. So I, I was watching your interview or your discussion with Alexandra Kleeman. Um, and her book, Something New Under the Sun, is one of like my favorite books ever um, yeah, because I feel great. like you guys both do this thing where you just lean into like just maximalism in terms of putting it like so much in your books. And I don't understand how it feels so seamless as a reader and it feels controlled and it doesn't feel like things are things are chaotic but they're not like chaotic in a bad way it feels very things make sense even when there's mystery behind what's really going on and i know you've spoken about how horror plays into that like how much is real how much is not and yeah. what can you mine in that um curiosity and so for this book i guess i'm wondering how you thought about using kind of a structured fairy tale to explore all of these themes and how do you kind of keep all those things wrangled in for yourself, um, despite that kind of maximalism. Yeah, um, I feel like, you know, the fairy tales do have a really very, very rigid kind of structure, but they're also very weirdly bendy too. I mean, they, if they if they weren't, we wouldn't have so many adaptations like we do. I mean, and there wouldn't be so much variance in adaptation. That's kind of why I love the form is because even though it is structured, there's so much room to play. Um, so, you know, I mean, threes are really important in fairy tales. There's also symbols are really potent. They often are external um, reflections of something that is going on internally. Um, so, you know, the mirror in Snow White was, I knew was gonna be a very important character and was gonna also inform the structure of the, of the book. Um, the red shoes, which a lot of people don't know is actually part of Snow White. Um, in the Grimm's, that is uh, how the queen dies. She dies because she has to wear these red shoes and she dances to death in these red shoes. So I knew the red shoes were important. Um, and again, structurally, they were useful. Symbols actually are very structurally um, potent in um, in fairy tale. So those, those symbols help me out a lot. Kind of the rule of threes helped me out a lot. And then fairy tales relationship to horror. I mean, that's kind of where horror comes from. It comes from folklore, comes from like oral storytelling forms. So there's a lot of crossover. What I find kind of exhilarating about horror, which isn't always present in fairy tale, but um, working with fairy tale allows you into the terrain of horror, which is great. Um, and allows you to kind of rupture it in interesting ways, which is also great, is that horror often ends open with the horror still there, still like out there to contend with in the world. There's a lot more ambiguity and latitude in horror, even though you you could you could maybe make that argument for fairy tales, but I do I do think fairy tales kind of tend to close, whereas horror likes to be open. Um, and so for me, that that kind of slippage between fairy tale and horror was again another way that I could bring more things in while still holding on to fairy tale because the two are really in conversation. One of my favorite things to read in fiction is books about motherhood and so I was very intrigued to see where you went with this one. For the mother-daughter relationship in this book, I was reading the acknowledgments and you say something interesting, I'm paraphrasing, but something about how like the characters are and are not people from your real life at the same time. Um, and how can that balance, like, I, I understand what you mean, but it's interesting to think about like how that's possible in the realm of fiction. Like they, a person or a character can be drawn from 
real life, but there's still something other. But I guess my question for you is how do you kind of find that balance between those two things? Um, and how does that feel for you as a writer? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I've, I've always kind of said that fiction is a form that has allowed me to tell the truth in ways that writing an essay um, just wouldn't allow me to do, even writing a poem wouldn't allow me to do in the same way. I guess for me, and I, I've said this before, but it's like wearing like a fantastic mask at a party. It just allows me somehow to become more truthful. We were talking about drag earlier, and I think there's a similar like correlation there. Like there's something about drag that actually brings the in internal stuff like out in a way that is just so real, even though it's a fantasy, it is real and it is filled with you, who you are on the inside. That's why I love fantasy because it can externalize these things that are internal using magic. That's what fiction does, you know? Um, fiction allows you to do that. Um, and so it allows you to like kind of blow up a moment or blow up your experience with a person. And I think that's how people who are in your life kind of can slide into the realm of fiction and they really truly become other but there of course there is something in them even in the fictional realm that reminds you right um and so for me yeah i wrote about how my the the grandmother character in rouge um she is definitely not my grandmother my maternal grandmother but she kind of is you know and in some ways yeah, it was incredibly wonderful to like have this character who is both familiar, but also fictional and, and to be able to kind of have this time with her. It was, it was, it was actually very, um, very um, moving and, and powerful. And, and she belonged in the story. I didn't add her just because I wanted to write about my grandmother. She showed up because, you know, the story of, of Snow White, the story of beauty, it really felt important to bring in history, familial history, and to bring in these characters and how their relationships to beauty inform this character, this main character's relationship. I, I know that you like drag. And so when I was reading this, I was kind of thinking about like potential ties to that form. Um, and, you know, it's interesting to me how, whether you're a writer or you're a drag artist, um, the way that you're pulling from external like forces to either, you know, paint your face or to put on certain masks in your writing, or trying to storytell with outside forces to show something internal. Like in your books, you explore this idea of loneliness a lot and also kind of solitude. And, yeah. you know, particularly in Bunny with trying to, you know, write and what does that mean to try to create stories about yourself while also being a very, you know, lonely person, um, right. as Samantha is in that book. But I guess I'm wondering for you, how does it feel to kind of, to perform through storytelling? Does it feel like you're like an entertainer in a sense when you're writing? Yeah, it's so interesting. Um that I'm in it like I it is like it is very um I, I I've used this kind of um comparison before but for me it feels like method acting like it feels like a complete immersion in the world um and that's how I like to do it that's always been how I like to do it I like stories that give me that feeling as a reader that's those are the stories that I was first drawn to especially in literature like I I love um, Kazuo Shiguro's Remains of the Day. I feel like that's a complete immersion into a consciousness. Um, I know he wrote that the first draft of that incredibly quickly, um, probably maybe for the same reason, I, I'm not sure, but he describes that feeling of being 
going out for a walk, like after having been with the story all day and just feeling giddy. And like, there was no, there was no delineation between the fictional world that he had been inside of. And now the outside world, it was all there. That's how it feels when, when I immerse myself into, into the first draft. I feel like even when I walk away from it for the day, I'm still inside of it. And it really is an incredible feeling, but I don't, um, I don't feel like a, a performer. I feel like I'm inside the world of it finding my way through it. Um, when I start to feel more aware is usually during revision process. Like that's usually where that kind of, that that impulse comes in. That's where I'm kind of sharpening. I'm making sure that every scene counts. I'm making sure that tonally everything is is cohering and making sense and characters' trajectories are working. And the reader can like, there's not so much ambiguity that the reader can't find their way, but there's enough that the reader has room those kinds of decisions are made in, in revision. It's interesting to think about how the difference is between kind of like when you're drafting something and kind of being seduced by the consciousness. Um, and this book is very much about seduction and being um, seduced by various forces. I mean, there's, you know, the Tom Cruise figure, which I know you've been asked a lot about in the book, which I think was just so funny, but also like works so well. There's something in being a reader as well of stories. Like you have to be seduced by the story that's being told to you to stay with it. And I feel like you're so good at kind of playing with just the right amount of like questioning with the reader to keep them kind of drawn in the entire time. Um, so how do you think about seduction for yourself as a writer? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I need to be seduced by the world. That's part of the reason why I don't start with critique because when you start with critique, you're on the outside of something and, and presumably, you know, maybe you have some armor you know, that protects you from it, if you're able to stand outside of it enough to point your finger at it, right? Um, that's not where I start. I start inside of it, trying to find my way out of it, because I think that that acknowledges the power of the thing in a different way. Um, it acknowledges the power of it. It acknowledges our own potential vulnerability to it. Um, for me, it's a place of more honesty than, than strict critique. I call the book in as much as it is, it is absolutely, there's no question that it's a critique, but it is also a dark celebration of the power that beauty can have over us. It's just not a small thing um, because beauty is a, I, I feel like when we say something is beautiful, we're saying so many other things at the same time. Sometimes it's a placeholder for our inability to express what we're experiencing. It's a placeholder for awe you know, um, for acknowledgement of the divine, maybe even. Um, so there, there's a lot going on behind beauty. And I really wanted to do justice to it in this book. And I certainly couldn't do that if it was just a critique. Yeah, beauty is one of my, something I'm really fascinated by. Um, I, I read the picture of Dorian Gray last year, and that book is very much obsessed with beauty, um, and also queerness. And yeah. it's something that's like unidentifiable in, in a certain way. And I feel like even when I talk about books online, like sometimes the only way I can describe it is like perfect, but like, what is, like, what does that mean? That doesn't really mean anything. It means something to me and like my own, you know, personal experience of a text. But yeah, I mean, I want to, I want to tie two more ideas of, of drag to your book because I want to talk to you about the mirror and the symbol yeah. of the mirror. Um, and I instantly thought of in Drag Race, if anyone's unfamiliar, when a queen is eliminated, they go back to the workroom where they get ready for challenges and they leave a mirror message um, for the queens before they leave. And I didn't know if that was like at all in your mind <laughs> when you were making this book, but um, there's something interesting about reflection in mirrors and how it exposes truth, but you kind of play with that idea in this book. Um, 
So how, what does the mirror mean to you? Yeah, no, that's so great that you um, bring that up. I mean, I've, I, I watched so much drag race. I mean, it's, I, I, it's changed the color of my dreams. Like when I first started watching it, my dreams took on other hues, which is so incredible. Um, and I'm sure that that was all in the back of my head as I was writing. Um, there's also this incredible scene. <laughs> it might've happened more than once, but I always remember it in all star season two, when, um, one of the queens is talking trash. It's Fifi, and she's talking trash about another queen, Alyssa. And uh, Alyssa hears, um, you know, this suddenly the mirror is exposed as like all these queens are behind it, and they could hear what she was saying. <laughs> and it's like everybody's worst nightmare that the mirror is actually like you know um, a portal like through which people can see like your secret self, you know, that you thought you thought was private a private it's on tv but you know what i mean that's the conceit um so i think that all of that the idea that the mirror could be um a place of vulnerability that it could be um you know um exposure that it could be um not trustworthy deceptive um all of these things i think informed the treatment of the mirror in rouge and i think it's true in snow white i mean i i think that is one of the most fundamentally mysterious relationships in fairy tale that relationship between the the queen and the mirror especially at the start of the story where she's looking into the mirror and she wants to know who the fairest of them all is and the mirror suddenly tells her it's not you <laughs> you know it's someone else um what is he doing and who is that we don't know there, there's almost no description of this figure who actually plants the seed of violence and destruction in her heart that then is the engine of the entire story. So this book really wanted to give a lot of space to that figure and kind of um, interrogate them a little more and and acknowledge that, that maybe they had a you know a, a sinister a sin, like sinister motivation there in what they did. Yeah. That ties to one more question for you that ties to Drag Race. It's it's I, I saw this TikTok. Um, it's from Trixie and Katya. <laughs> they were doing some. I think they're doing a Netflix react and Trixie asks Katya, she's like, why do you think queer people are so drawn to horror? Um, yeah. Cause we are. And I'm like, that's, I'm a queer person. I am very drawn to horror. And I've always wondered like why exactly that is. And Katya jokingly says, um, we like to watch straight people being killed <laughs> or some, something along those lines. I'm wondering like for you and just like your fascination with horror, I mean, what do you think, where do you think it comes from for you personally? I think horror, appeals to um in a lot of ways appeals to to anyone who feels outside or like they don't belong because often horror is about taking down people who have power um sometimes it's not um sometimes you know like the slasher genre is filled with you know um a lot of people die just because they have sex <laughs> you know so there's not that's not always um, the case, but I do think that that maybe that's the exciting thing about it is that it it kind of gives voice to people who are on the margins for for one reason or another, um, and um, and kind of takes down infrastructures that are oppressive, you know, finds its way into suburban homes, finds its way into like you know um, rich white you know straight um, homes and does does damage. Um, I'm thinking about Rosemary's baby and how in so many ways that is a really like honest exploration of like 
how vulnerable it would be to be a pregnant woman, you know, um, and, and just how frightening that experience could be. I mean, it was written by a man, it was directed by a man, but there is, there is still something fundamentally subversive and provocative and, and, um, and challenging to the patriarchy about it. Um, so maybe that's it. I think it, it, like it appeals to, to the outsider and takes down, takes down the powerful and likes to do that, likes to put fear in their hearts. So, so maybe that's the appeal. This kind of ties perfectly to something I've been dying to ask you about. Um, so I'm, I'm good friends with Torin who, yes. on Instagram, Blue Boy Book Club, if anyone's unfamiliar, um, he's amazing. He made the Reading the Room cover art for the podcast. Um, and he also loves Brett Easton Ellis. And I know that American Psycho was an inspiration for this book. And I actually, so I've only read The Shards by him, um, but it's one of my like now all time favorite books. It's like exactly what I want in a horror novel. Um, and I know you also like The Shards. So I just wanted to ask you, open floor about Brett Easton Ellis, American Psycho and The Shards and like what you think works well in those books and how it might have inspired you in Rouge. Oh my God, I love The Shards so, so, so much. Um, I think it's his best book. I mean, in my opinion, it's his best book. I like it more than American Psycho. I love American Psycho, um, but there are some sections of it that are just, they're so hard for me to read because uh, they're just so graphic and they go on for so long <laughs> and they're really, really violent. Um, I still think that book is a total masterpiece. Um, but um, but yeah, the shards is more atmospheric. It's in some ways it's more restrained. Um, it also because the main character is 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 queer and is open about that. I think it's there's a vulnerability in that book that is just it's incredible. I mean, it's there's it there it feels honest. I guess is what is the thing. And I love that in books. I love when they, they feel very emotionally, psychologically honest, even if it's just the writer, like the writer's art that is making me feel that still that feeling of, of honesty really stayed with me in the shards. He's like a magician when it comes to, and I think this is the thing where I, I think I take a lot of inspiration from a storytelling thing that he does there's two things. One, he just completely immerses you in a consciousness and it's a complete immersion. I mean, he's another one of those writers who does that with voice and I always believe it. It's just, it's always just very convincing, real voice that feels very grounded in the world. So there's that. And then the other thing is he does this thing where suddenly you feel through his own storytelling that the the world of this novel is like expanding all around you it's unfurling all around you and suddenly you're in the labyrinth of it and it's like stretching in every direction that's an incredible storytelling trick of conjuring an atmosphere that feels so real and so expansive and and it's actually kind of frightening and that's what he did in the shards he just completely for me as a reader he plunged me into the world of it um, and I felt like there was no escape from it. I felt like I was inside of it. And I love doing that with my books. I, I like books to feel like they're a world. Um, I love really conjuring an atmosphere um, through voice and then just through storytelling style. And he really does that. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan and he's been, he's been a huge influence. And of course the infamous morning routine in American Psycho, you know, Patrick Bateman's morning routine where he lists all the products that he uses. And uh, that was a total um, inspiration for the description of Bell's skincare routines. 
I did upon reflection, I was like Belle and the narrator of the shards feel kind of similar because they're deeply at these very vulnerable places in their lives, different in a sense, but the narrator of the shards is kind of losing friends around him and there's a sinister force that he doesn't really understand. And then also there's a sense of like unreliability, which I think that you play with a lot in your fiction as well, but it kind of, it doesn't matter. Like I didn't, I just, I trusted the, the voice that I was with and I wanted to see it through to the end. And I feel like in both Rouge and the Shards, that's very much true um, and all your books. But yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a really hard thing to pull off in terms of getting, I think it goes back to that idea of seduction because like as soon as I started both of those books, I like, I, you have to see what happens by the end of it. And you just want to see that voice and you want to stay with it for so long. Like, it, it sucks that the books are over <laughs> and yeah. like this idea of closure is hard. Um, do you feel that too? I mean, I know like last time we spoke, I asked you about your relationship to your books and how you said something along the lines of how they kind of feel like apart from you now once they're published. Um, did that still ring true for you in this book? Oh yeah, this was maybe the hardest one to let go of. I mean, it really started for me with Bunny, but it happened with All's Well and it's really happening for Rouge where I knew it. I knew I knew when I turned it in, like I, I looked at the sun <laughs> And for two years, when I looked at the sun, rouge had informed the way that I looked at it. And it felt like a rouge sun. It informed the way I looked at everything. And when I gave the book up, that was all gone. All that context that I was living in was suddenly gone. This incredible companion that it was like infusing everything with more color, more vibrancy, um, you know, more dread, more enchantment was was gone. And I, I, I'm realizing that the cost of fully immersing yourself in the world of, of a novel when you're writing it, the cost of that approach to it is that when it goes, it, it really does feel like you're, you're losing like some very large part of yourself. <laughs> like it's like a whole interior world that infuses your uh, experience of the external world. Um, so it's, it's difficult and I'm trying to learn how, I mean, how I deal with it is of course I start a new project and I allow that to kind of, but it doesn't, it doesn't quite, um, take away the loss you know? So it's, yeah, it's hard. The consolation of course, is that you're, you're giving it to readers who then find their own, their own creative life with it. So that is, that is the ultimate consolation. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, one thing that's also a positive of this is that you're also a teacher and you instill kind of these lessons, I would assume, um, that you're learning from, you know, publishing work yourself to your students. And I, I know last time we talked a bit about teaching and I'm wondering, does it, do you stick to like a, a standard, um, like syllabus every year? Do you kind of switch it up? Like, I'm wondering what you're teaching now, like in this time, um, if it's similarly rooted in horror and if it's something different from last time, I think it was about slashers. Is that right? Last year, I could be wrong. Yeah, last year I was teaching my horror class, which is one of my favorite classes to teach. Um, and I do try to vary the syllabus a bit. I think I think it's 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 good for me. It's good for it's good for the students. I try to stay current. It's it's very very difficult to stay current and have and write and teach. It's all you know. It's all it's a lot, but I do try. So I'll switch out things um, every time I teach. Um, there are things that I always come back to. Um, I'm teaching my uh, fairy tale class this term, and I do tend to stick to an anthology just because in a lot of ways, that's the most accessible way to do it um, and the most affordable way to do it. Um, there's this anthology by Maria Tatar, 
who is a scholar out of Harvard who's written a number of books about fairy tales. She's edited a number of anthologies about fairy tale, um, but her classic fairy tales is, is, is actually a very good anthology that includes a lot of um, folklore from different parts of the world. So it's, it's really less Western um, in, its, in its kind of um, organization. And that's part of the reason why I use it. Um, but I'll always supplement with, um, with additional stuff with like contemporary stories. Next week we're reading um, A Better Place by Otessa Moshvig uh, in conversation with Hansel and Gretel and the Juniper Tree. Um, so that'll be a good, a good class, I think. So I do try to mix it up. Oh my God. I can, I'm going a whole tangent about that story, but can I please I sit in the back of the classroom? Like I want to like watch how this goes, this plays out. Um, it's so good. That's like my favorite Tessa story. Um, yeah, yeah it's great. so, it's so dark and so lovely at the same time. Um, that's awesome to hear. You know, I'm always curious about like teaching seems to be, I mean, I'm just like, I'm just a reader. So you, like on the one hand, like, writing seems like just yeah. impossible. Like I can't even imagine what you like, what a writer goes through in, in the creation of a piece of art, but also then kind of teaching that experience because I know like something I keep talking about on my podcast is this idea of writers when they're, when they're writing, it's like this idea of like channeling or like something comes out on the page that they just never expected to come or like they don't really know why it's there or why a character said something. I'm wondering like how you kind of translate those experiences into like craft and, and kind of letting those two things play at the same time. Well, that's the weird thing about writing. I mean, that's the thing about it that's really difficult is, you know, I um, <laughs> I don't think I would ever try to break apart what is so magical about the shards because I don't know that I want to know. I want to kind of absorb it on an intuitive level as a writer because to me, in some ways, that's the best way. Sometimes mapping it out and breaking it down makes things too technical. And then when you sit down at your desk to write, you get all in your head about how you're doing it on the page and you lose intuition. So sometimes I think it's worth taking things in through intuition just by reading and then writing, seeing how it informs your writing. So how that kind of informs my approach, because a lot of things happen by accident, I guess is my point. A lot of the most important things that have happened in my stories, crucial things like in Bunny, Discoveries, and in Rouge and in All's Well have happened by accident. And when I say by accident, just like, I wasn't like thinking, oh, I'm gonna, you know, no, they just show up because I'm paying attention and I'm in the moment, that's it. You know, you, you can't teach that. <laughs> you, can, you can teach trying to pay attention. You can teach trying to be in the moment to a degree. Um, but I think it's just, I, I really try to um, not break things down too much, give as much a voice to, um, to the students as possible, have us talk about our impressions um, because I, I think in some ways that gives them way more room to take in what's useful and, and kind of, you know, leave the rest. Cause that's what they, I, that's what I think you need to do as a young writer, just take in the things that excite you. It's something I want to ask you about. It's just the cover of this book in jellyfish. Was that something that came by surprise or was that always like a symbol that you wanted to include? No, that was a, that was just a descriptive detail. Okay. At first. And as, as you know, and I don't think that this is a spoiler, 
jellyfish play a very important role in the novel. Um, so I came upon that by, you know, just description, like just being in the moment describing. That's how Tom Cruise showed up. It was an accident, <laughs> you know, it was, I mean, I, I'm calling it an accident for, for lack of a better word, but what I do mean is just these elements of the story showed up in the moment without design, without, you know, predetermining, without plotting, without planning, just um, they arose through the course of, of writing a scene. And that's how a lot of the best stuff I think shows up. There's a lot of witchery in writing that you can't, you can't diagram. Um, and you have to just give students, I guess, permission to trust themselves in those moments. That's, it's really about that. Um, giving, giving everybody a sense that you can trust those like little things that come up, keep them and, and see where they lead you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about like things that might be lurking underneath your subconscious or things that might just be there that you don't see because I, <laughs> so this is, I don't know if this is just me, but I, I saw this cover when it first like was announced and I like loved it, but I had yeah. no idea until I read the book that this was a jellyfish. Like I just didn't, I don't know if it's just me. <laughs> I thought it was just like the flower, but then when I saw it, it kind of spooked me a little bit. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, yeah. there's like a jellyfish sitting there the entire time. And I had no idea. Um, right. Was that intentional or am I just like, not observant enough <laughs> to catch it. Oh, no, no. I'm so glad a lot of people have said the very thing that you just said. Um, and I'm so relieved um, to hear that. I'm glad that it's a bit mysterious visually. Um, to me, it it wasn't the first time I saw it because of course it wasn't. Um, but, um, but I'm so glad to hear that because I do think that the cover should be mysterious. I think it's, it's my favorite cover that I've, I've, I've had. It was designed by Oliver Monday. It's it's beautiful. I, he gave us six designs to choose from, and we chose that first one right away. There was just no question. It was the one. Yeah, it's it's gorgeous, and I feel like it's. I love like a black cover as well. It's just it's so yeah. striking, and and the font is just like I'm a big oh. fan of certain fonts, and that does so much work. I feel like, but yeah, yes. it's lovely. <laughs> so last thing to ask you about is just yeah. you know this is a Halloween episode. I'm wondering. Yeah. Have, have any traditions changed for you? Like, do you have anything you're going to plan to do tomorrow? Um, <laughs> anything on the watch list, the read list, just vibes generally? Yeah. Um, gosh, you know, last year when we, when we did this, I think it was either the day before or the day after, but um, I, um, I was teaching my slasher class. So um, yeah, that was a great way to celebrate Halloween, <laughs> um, teaching that slasher class. Um, I don't know. I mean, I kind of, I kind of do uh, wish I could, I could dress up. Um, but I've always been kind of, you know, I, I think about what RuPaul said about how he he dresses up every day except on Halloween. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that there, yeah, there, there may be something to that. I might, I might, I may be kind of doing that every day and I don't do it on Halloween, but Halloween is in my heart. It's like my, it's my favorite. Um, I'll probably watch some like old favorite movies. That's probably what I'll do. Um, I, I'm kind of getting a craving to watch Rosemary's Baby again. Cause I just, I love that movie so much. The thing about that movie that I think is so great is the villains in it because they seem so you're so you could be so dismissive of these like of these people at first because they're so funny like they're so 
but they're, they're still, even when they're just funny and you're just like, oh, just a couple of old people, like, you know, a couple of old rich people, you're like, they're disturbing, they're unsettling and it just gets worse and worse. I just love that. I love that so much. And it's beautifully shot too. Just incredibly gorgeous. Um, I don't know if I mentioned um, her last time, but the book just got reissued very recently. So I'm, I'm going to mention it because I saw the cover and it was so beautiful. Um, Come Closer. Have I, did I talk about that last time? No, I don't think so. Okay. Um, yeah, it's by Sarah Gran and it's um, a novel about demonic possession. And it is so good. Um, and it, yeah, it's just been reissued with a new cover and the cover is really creepy and um, it's short um, and it's got like some moments that are really darkly humorous. It's got some um, Brad Easton Ellis energy. It's much shorter than a, like, a, you know, his most famous novel. Um, but there, there's something about it. I think it has to do with the way that she there are some moments in that story and horror likes to do this, this whole thing. Um, you know, is it, is it in your head or is it really happening? Which is it, right? You don't know. And that tension kind of is the engine pulling you forward in terms of dread. Um, sh sh there's some moments in the, in the book where you're really not sure. And it's, it's really incredible. And in a lot of ways, you know, um, that's the thing about American psycho that I love the most is that, you know, there's like a scene where it's you're it's no longer clear. In fact, it's incredibly unclear whether this is actually happening, whether Patrick Bateman is really doing this or it's all in his head. We don't know. Like suddenly that scene changes everything. Come Closer has moments like that. And they're so riveting. If possession frightens you, which it does me, it's like one of my deepest fears. Probably all of my novels <laughs> like touch on that. They're, they can be read as dread of possession. Um, they, uh, if, if, if possession interests you, it's like an incredible novel about possession. Yeah. I, I've seen that book around for a while. I think it's kind of like a bit of like a cult classic that's kind of grown yes. its readership for like many years. Um, yeah. and I saw the new cover at the bookstore and I didn't grab it, but now I need to go back and get it. Cause that sounds amazing. So really good. This is such a nosy question. And if you don't <laughs> want to share anything, please do, you don't have to. But um, I remember last time we spoke, you had just submitted Rouge, I think like that week or something. I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you care to share about anything that's like kind of inspiring you for your next work, anything you care to divulge or not. Yeah, no, I am. I am um, working on a, a prequel to Bunny. Um, and I've yeah, completed um, a draft of it. So I'm revising it now. Yeah. That's very exciting. Yeah, it's been a very great consolation um, for, um, you know, being on the other side of, of of publishing Rouge, which is always like, it's always like bittersweet. So, um, so yeah, being back in the world of Bunny, and that's when I first felt it, that kind of, oh my God, I'm so sad that this is over. I'm so sad that getting to go back has, has been really, really great. I cannot wait, because Bunny was like my introduction to you, and it was just, I remember it's up here somewhere. I'm blank. I don't know. It's one of my all time favorites. So it's always going to be like here um, where I keep my faves up there. But um, that's so exciting. So I cannot wait for whenever that comes out. And thank you so much for coming on. I know we're kind of like a little bit later than the publication of Rouge, but I'm so excited to get to talk to you. And it's like the perfect time to do it is Halloween. So it's so much fun talking to you. So thank you. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for your wonderful questions and insights. And yeah, it's always fun. So I'd be happy to come back anytime. Thank you.